Well, it's good to be back here again at Boulevard, and uh, if my memory serves me correct, you're sitting in about the same seats as you were sitting last year at this time. And I'm glad to be standing here where I am uh, today from where I was last year as well. Uh, glad to be up also, or I should say down, sorry about that, down from New Jersey where they're going through some very cold spells these days. And uh, we've come down here pretty much for the last number of years down to the uh, Boca Raton Bible Chapel. We just recently had a seminar uh, in that uh, chapel as well as in Florida Atlantic University, which I know you know about since you had some representation here. Glad to have you had a part in it that way, certainly for prayer and in the attendance of the meetings as well. And uh, as I mentioned prayer, I appreciate very much the emphasis of this assembly for prayer and especially for missions too. And uh, we uh, feel that any vital New Testament assembly would certainly have a focus on missions as well as other things, both the desire to uh, build up the local assembly, as uh, you had listed here on the number of prayer requests, as well as uh, praying for the Lord's servants overseas. So we uh, commend you for that. Uh, With those things in mind, I'd like to invite you to turn to Nehemiah chapter 3 for a message this evening. I want to bring a word in season that will be practical, given the uh, audience, the group that's here this, uh, this evening, some practical ministry from the book of Nehemiah. And we want to take a look at the uh, chapter 3 and the account of the gates of Nehemiah and their repair, led by Nehemiah, but uh, in particular Eliashib, the high priest. Uh, Nehemiah was the one that perhaps spearheaded this, but you don't see him in this uh, portion. And so that uh, highlights the fact that it was a group effort. And I notice on your prayer request uh, that you had on the uh, overhead here on the screen that you'll be praying for the Workers and Elders Conference, which, Lord willing, will be held uh, in this area uh, in October. And the theme for that will be revival. And for revival to take place, there's certainly got to be a group effort. For revival to take place in in an assembly's life, much less the church at large across the world, there has to be the effort done by everyone, not just some people, but everyone. And uh, certainly it's that uh, thought that we have, Lord, send a revival and let it begin with me. So each one of us needs to do that individually, but also uh, we need to be working with one another in that regard. And so Nehemiah chapter 3 addresses that in some ways in picture uh, and symbolically in the way that the gates of Nehemiah, uh, of Jerusalem rather, were repaired. Uh, For context and to come into it, uh, just the last couple verses of chapter 2, beginning at verse 17. So Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 17, we read, Then I said to them, Nehemiah is speaking, You see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God which had been good upon me and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. So they said, Let us rise up and build. Then they set their hands to do this good work. But when Senballat, the Horonite, these are the enemies of Israel, Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of it, they laughed at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? Of course, these are trumped up charges that they were making to make it look uh, bad for the Israelites. So verse 20, it says, So I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we his servants will arise and build. But you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. Then verse 1 of chapter 3, Then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brethren, the priests, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. They built it as far as the Tower of the Hundred and consecrated then as far as the Tower of Hananel. 
Next to Eliashib, the men of Jericho built. Next to them, Zachar, the son of Imri, built. And we'll be going through this chapter verse by verse uh, for most of it uh, and look at these things, these gates uh, in particular. Well, this account here in Nehemiah chapter 3 does talk about the repair of the gates of Jerusalem. And if you know anything of your Bible history, the nation of Israel had played fast and loose with the world and with idolatry in their day. And because of that, God punished them and allowed the nation of uh, Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar in particular, the king of that uh, nation, to come in and take the nation of Israel captive. And uh, they were captive for some 70 years. But after a period of time, Cyrus the Persian allowed the nation of Israel to return. About 50,000 people took up that offer to go back to Jerusalem to restore uh, the temple and to get back on their land. They had been held captive in Babylon for many, many years. And not everyone went, as we know. The book of Esther reminds us of that. Not all the Jews went back to the nation of Israel, to the land, but uh, a good portion of them did, 50,000 of them. Well, now fast forward even further, and you have Nehemiah who's uh, in the palace, and he's hearing the report coming back that the walls are still ruined. They're still in disrepair. They haven't been fixed. Uh, the gates are burned. Uh, things have not really uh, taken a, a proper way at all. And so he hears this distressing news, and he's very discouraged and very depressed about it. But he prays to the God of heaven, and instantly uh, Nehemiah prays, and that's how connected he was. And that's a good reminder for all of us that we need to be uh, spontaneous in our prayer. When we hear distressing news, whatever it might be, uh, look right to the Lord, to the God of heaven, and to the Lord, and uh, offer that prayer and ask the Lord help. And it reinforces the fact that we need his help all the time. And that's what Nehemiah did. And so when he got that word, he was allowed and been give, he was given a decree to go back to Jerusalem and make that assessment. And the first uh, step in any revival, whether it's personal or corporate with any local assembly, is for that uh, assessment to be made. Uh, perhaps even the acknowledgement to be made first and then the assessment. So he takes his night trip around Jerusalem. We had the privilege of doing that a number of years ago when we took a trip to Jerusalem. We took two trips and uh, we did do the night walk around Jerusalem. It was fascinating. And uh, that's what Nehemiah did. He took that night trip around Jerusalem, saw the uh, disrepair that was there and said and made a commitment that he would uh, help uh, that work to uh, go ahead and go forward and to definitely uh, repair these gates. And so that's what we see here in chapter three, the repair of the gates of Jerusalem. And for us uh, here in 2014, it's a good exercise to go through these gates and through the uh, activities that we see here in this chapter and be reminded of what does it take for us to get back on track with the Lord? What does it take for us, either whether personally or from a local assembly standpoint, to get back on track? A number of years ago, I worked for a conference uh, center and uh, we had our staff retreat. And uh, we went to another camp and uh, at that camp, the fellow that had founded that camp and helped build it up was a railroad buff. And uh, I remember he had built a railroad, an actual miniature railroad track and train as well to go all around this camp. It was a kid's camp. And I'm not talking a little tiny train. I'm talking about a nice sized train that went around the whole thing. And it was really nice. The kids would get picked up. They'd be dropped off from their parents. There'd be a lot of crying, a lot of tears. Not from the kids, from the parents, that is. And uh, they would go around uh, this track and they would um, put the luggage on the uh, train and then train would take the kids around to the other side and it was a great camp that they they had well this time that we were there 
we were there for the staff retreat. And so they said, you can run the train, this group of Christians here, or you can run this train. And so they gave me the controls of the train. And so I thought everything was going fine. We were smoothing, going down the trail, the, the rail smoothly and all that, until all of a sudden I heard bump, 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 and the train derailed off the track. What was the problem? Well, I failed to get the switch, to see the switch. There's a switch there. It said, when you see that switch, make sure you go this way and not that way. And I went the wrong way and, of course, got off track. And so all of us, all the guys, that is, had to get off this train and actually pick this thing up. It was small enough that we could pick it up and get us back on track. And when I think about that episode that took place in my own experience, it's a reminder to us there are times that we're going along in our Christian walk with the Lord. And perhaps we're just not watching we're taking good, close diligence uh, in terms of our own personal walk with the Lord. And somehow, some way, we get off track. Uh, that's what it says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. We should be careful and diligent, lest at any time we should let these things slip. And it's easy for us to get off track. And so what we need to do, both personally in our own life, as well as corporate life, we need to make sure that we have certain priorities in line. And that's a, what we see here in chapter 3 of Nehemiah. So I'd like to look at it from that standpoint as a, just a simple reminder to us of some of those things that need to be uh, put back on track. Well, let's take a look at some of these uh, gates. These are the gates of Jerusalem. There are 10 listed here in Nehemiah chapter 3. Technically, they are, there are 12 gates. In Nehemiah uh, chapter uh, 10, I believe it is, two other gates are re- referenced there. Uh, they are the gates of Ephraim and the gate of the prison gate. I'm sorry, chapter 12, just for your records if you're keeping notes. Uh, in verse 39, the gate of Ephraim and then also the gate of the prison. And uh, so there are 12 gates in all. And it's a reminder to us of the city four square and the 12 gates uh, that we see in Revelation chapter 21 with the 12 foundations. Everything in God's economy seems to circle around 12. And uh, here uh, we see 10 of those gates referred to. And each one of these gates, I think, are significant places uh, that were there in the nation of Israel that speaks specifically about significant places in our own walk with the Lord. Uh, the gate was the entrance to the city, the inner part of that uh, place where people uh, were living. And so each one of these gates were gates of judgment, we might say, places where uh, activity took place. You remember in Genesis chapter 19, Lot was outside the city gate and he sat in a place of judgment. So when people would bring their cases or whatever it might be that they had to have taken care of, they would go to the gate and that's where business was conducted. And for us to mean business with God, we need to come to these certain significant places represented by these gates in Jerusalem and do business with God in a very special way. Not just give lip service to the Lord, but really mean business with him. And so the first gate that we see then is the sheep gate. And it's listed right here. It says that Eliashib, the high priest in verse 1, rose up with the brethren and the, his brethren, the priests, and built the sheep gate. Now, it's interesting that uh, Eliashib begins this process. The question was, or the challenge was put in the previous verses, let us rise up and build. And so Nehemiah says, therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. So there was this uh, desire to rise up and build. But desire is one thing. Carrying out is another thing. And Eliashib then acts on that commitment. And so he rises up, just as the text says, to build this gate, rebuild the gate, along with his brethren, the priests. And it's quite fitting, indeed that the priests led this uh, charge, we might say, to rebuild the gate. What was the gate? What was the sheep gate? 
The sheep gate, of course, was the gate where the sheep would come in and they would be used for the temple sacrifice. And so the very uh, first gate that we see addressed here is the gate that dealt with the matter of worship and sacrifice. And for a believer to get back on track with the Lord. So they really are feeling like there's a, a real sense of the presence and power of God working in and through our lives is, of course, the repair of that part of our life, which deals with prayer and worship. Prayer and worship is a vital key component of the Christian life. If you remember uh, Joshua in Jer- uh, Joshua chapter 5, before he went into Jericho, what did he see? He saw another Joshua. I call it the meeting of the two Joshuas. Uh, it was really an Old Testament appearance of Christ. It was the commander of the Lord of hosts. And before he was going to have any victory in Jericho, he would have to definitely be in touch with the living God, with uh, Joshua himself or the Lord Jesus. We might see Jesus, of course, if you're not familiar, is the Greek form of Joshua and Joshua is the Hebrew form of Jesus. And so they were the meeting of the two Joshuas. But in order for Joshua the literal, physical Joshua to be victorious, he had to be in touch with the Lord. And for us to do anything for the Lord, we have to be in touch with him. John chapter 15 says it clear, without me, you can do nothing. So there is that need to be in touch with the Lord. And before we do anything, anything at all for the Lord, we need to really be in touch with him. Not running ahead of him, not behind him. Remember the account in Luke chapter 2, is it? where uh, uh, one of those chapters, I'm not quite sure of the chapter, but the early stages of uh, Luke's gospel, where Mary and Joseph are with the Lord Jesus in Jerusalem. They come down from Nazareth. And then as they head back, they run ahead of the Lord. The Lord's still in the temple. He's talking uh, to the people in the temple, the doctors in the temple, it says. And he is asking them questions, and he's answering their questions. They had already gone ahead. A reminder to us that we can easily run ahead of the Lord. So we need to be in touch with the Lord. And the sheep gate here was the first gate that was repaired. And it's a gate that reminds us of prayer and worship. And it's spearheaded here by Eliashib, the high priest. Very fitting, because he's the leader of God's people. It starts with him, incidentally, doesn't it? Uh, it's, it's, this, this revival is going to take place by one person saying, I'm going to rise up and build. And then, of course, his brother follows, brethren rather follow suit, and then others follow as well. And so there's a whole potpourri, we might say, of people that are involved in this project. Not only is it a high priest and his brethren, but there's other people that are involved. Look with me at verse 8 in the passage. We haven't read this yet, but it says goldsmiths. Uh, and it uh, has perhaps in your uh, version apothecaries or perfumers. There's a lot of different people that are involved in this. There are leaders that are involved in this Revival that takes place. The next verse, verse 9, next to him was Rephaiah, the son of Hur, the leader of half the district of Jerusalem. He made repairs. Um, it says here in verse 12 that uh, Shalom, the son of uh, Halohesh, leader of half the district of Jerusalem, he and his daughters made repairs. So there's daughters and there's sons and there's uh, uh, perfumers and there's goldsmiths and there's rulers and all sorts of people that are involved in this project, this group project, to rebuild the gates of Jerusalem. And no matter what it is, whether it's a project, missions project, might be some other project that a local assembly takes up, whatever it is, there is a responsibility or requirement for people to be working together, working uh, hand in hand or side by side. You don't see any complaining going on here at all amongst these people as we read through the passage in a few minutes. 
Uh, you don't see any criticizing, any complaining. When Nehemiah gets the word about the gates being in disrepair, he doesn't start complaining. He doesn't uh, point the finger and lay blame. He cries out to the Lord and says, Lord, this is the situation. This is what needs to be done. And we're willing to do it. Count me in. And that should be our attitude as well. If anything is going to be accomplished for the Lord, it's with that type of attitude, that positive, moving forward attitude, dependent on the Lord, just as Nehemiah did. And so we see it uh, very clearly here in the opening verses of this portion. So the first gate that was repaired was the sheep gate. And it's a reminder to us of the need for prayer and worship to be in proper order. The next one here, uh, and by the way, while I'm talking about that, just turn over in your Bibles for one second to John chapter 12. I just want to point something out to you. John chapter 12, real quickly. I think this is an important point. Years ago, I remember reading something along these lines from a Daily Bread devotional. John chapter 12. And uh, as it really stuck with me, and I think it's good for all of us to see this. In John chapter 12, verse 1, we see uh, the Lord Jesus uh, meeting together with the three people that he was very fond of. Of course, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. It says in verse 2, they made him a supper. And notice this. It says, Martha served, two words, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. That's 12 words. And then in verse 3, then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. That's a 39-word description right there. 2, 12, and 39. Now, all three of these actions remind us of key components of the Christian life. The first, of course, is service. Martha served. That's important. Service is very important. But notice the priority, it seems, or premium that is put on fellowship. Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. That's important. Fellowship with the Lord's people are important. But what's more, even more important than fellowship? It's worship. Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard. So worship is a critical component of the Christian life, of course, and a heart attachment to Christ, not just going through the motions, but a heart attachment to the things of God. That's what's going to drive and that's what's going to fuel any personal revival, much less a corporate revival. And that's what we see here in Nehemiah chapter three. Uh, Now, the next gate that we see going back to that chapter in verse three, it says the sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Urijah, the son of Koz, made repairs. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Barakiah, the son of Meshazabel, made repairs. Next to them, Zadok, the son of Banam, made repairs. And next to them, the Tekoites made repairs. But their nobles did not put their shoulders to the work of their Lord. So the next gate that's repaired is the fish gate. And immediately when you think of fish and you think of the Christian life, Don't you think of the verses uh, that the Lord Jesus and the words of the Lord Jesus spoke to his disciples? I will make you fishers of men. Uh, Even on many of our cars, we see little fish symbols. It's a reminder that we are told as one of the key components of our walk with the Lord is that we are to be evangelists and to be serving the Lord in that way, telling others about Christ. And so here is the gate, apparently, where fish came into the city. And so there was a, a means by uh, a gate where, where this took place. We think of uh, the Christian life, uh, the responsibility that we have to be evangelists. Paul said to Timothy, didn't he, in Second Timothy chapter 4, do the work of an evangelist. Now, Timothy had a pastoral gift from what we can gather, obviously, 
It's a pastoral epistle. He wasn't a pastor of the church, but he was a pastoral in his gift. And yet Paul says to them, do the work of an evangelist. So we all have that responsibility. The difference between you and someone else who has that gift of evangelism is the person who's got the gift can do it perhaps effortlessly or there's uh, more fruit from the effort that he makes or something like that or just desires to do it more. But we all have that responsibility. We all have the responsibility to teach other people. We all have a responsibility to do the work of an evangelist. We all have the responsibility to serve. We all have these 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 areas of responsibility. The person who's gifted has a particular skill in doing it, given to him by the risen Christ. That's the difference between the gift and the responsibility. But we all have that responsibility. So the fish gate here is a reminder to us that we all have the responsibility to do evangelism. And unless we fix that gate, we can become, as someone has many, you've heard it many times, I have, the Dead Sea, you know, it only takes in and doesn't give out. And uh, the Dead Sea is dead for that reason. And uh, what we need to do is make sure that there's always that responsibility. And I speak to myself about this responsibility as well. When you're first a believer, there's this passion, desire that you have to share the good news with those who don't know the Lord. And somehow, somewhere along the line, it just kind of cools and we lose that fervency that we once had. And so, but that needs to be fixed. And the very fact that we get involved in this like we perhaps once were, we'll, we'll see things happen. We'll see the Lord work. And as the Lord, as we see the Lord work, then we'll get excited about these things as well. And it just fuels that revival fire in our own heart. So the fish gate is another important thing. Now, it's interesting here. It says in verse 5 that the Decoites made repairs, but their nobles did not put their shoulders to the work of their Lord. Now, it says their Lord. So they are believers who don't want to get involved. Now, whether they were lazy, we don't know the exact reason. They might have just been lazy. You know, nobles, uh, they got a lot of extra money. All of a sudden, it just kind of kills the desire to go out and tell others about the news. We look at it from that standpoint. Uh, These nobles just didn't feel it was, or they felt like it was beneath them to do these things, perhaps. Or it could have been, in your own time, you can look at this, Nehemiah chapter 6. It says that uh, they had an alliance with uh, Tobiah, and uh, he was an Ammonite. So maybe that alliance kind of nullified their obligation to be involved in the building of this rebuilding of this gate. Worldly alliances will do that. Will really take the steam or the wind out of our sails spiritually. So that's what's perhaps going on there in verse five. The next gate we have to move this along quickly. Obviously, we have ten gates here. 10-point message in a poem. Uh, verse 6, Moreover, Jehoiada, the son of Paseah, and Meshulam, the son of Besodeah, repaired the old gate. They laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and its bars. And next to them were these other people, including the men of Gibeon, it says. And next to them, verse 8, as we read, Uzziah, the son of uh, Harahiah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs. And next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers or apothecaries, made repairs and so forth. So here's the old gate that's being referenced. Now, what was the purpose of this old gate? We don't know. Scholars have looked at this and said, well, what, what was the old gate? Well, maybe it might have been a gate that was there in Solomon's temple, in the days of Solomon's temple. Maybe that was it. 
Either way, obviously, it was old, and so it was a tie to the past. Now, I think that in my own walk with the Lord, the tie of the past. Um, I can't help but think of the incident in uh, Genesis chapter 26 was the case of Isaac, who in a famine in a land did exactly what his father did, Abraham. He went down away from the land. God stopped him in his tracks and said, stay here, sojourn in this land, I'll provide for you. And so he reiterated to him the Abrahamic covenant, specific directions to stay right there because God had promised Abraham tremendous blessing. Well, Isaac stayed there. But while he was there, he was living a compromised life. And he wasn't really not doing anything for the Lord. He was making lots of money, but lots of money doesn't mean that you're walking close with the Lord. Okay? It doesn't mean you don't have to be walking close with the Lord, but certainly in his case, he wasn't. When he finally turned around and went away from Gerar, the area of compromise, Genesis 26 this is, and he starts going back into the land, he rediscovers the wells that Abraham had built years before. The Philistines, it says, choked them up with dirt. The people in that time, the Philistines, the enemies of God, had deliberately choked these wells up with dirt trying to cover over these past um, episodes that Abraham had where he had seen the faithfulness of God, sunk a well and named it by a name and said, this is what God did for me in this place. And the enemies of God's people knew that and so they went over and they covered up those wells with dirt. And when Isaac came back to that area, he found those wells and he dug them up and they were a tie to the past. The faithfulness that God had exhibited to Abraham and of course to Isaac and the rest. That's what they were meant to be. And so when we think of the old gate, these are the ties to the past. The old past. Jeremiah says it in chapter 6, verse 16. He says, stand in the way and ask for the old past. Where is the good way? And walk in it. And so there is that responsibility for the old past. What that means is, you know, the, some of the teaching that you've had perhaps for many years, but maybe have let go, you let slip. Separation. Walking close with the Lord and keeping a walk in a narrow path and things along those lines. That's the old path. That's a reminder to us of that. So the old path would remind us, old gate rather, would remind us of the old paths in the walk in our walk with the Lord. We have to scoot this along, but uh, look at uh, verse 10. In the same way here, it's a very interesting uh, thing that we see. Next to him, it says, Judea, the son of uh, Haramath, made repairs in front of his house. That's a repair made in front of him. That was an incentive the guy had. His, his house was involved in a process. You know, I've learned in my walk with the Lord now for these many years that uh, when we relate the activities that are, we're involved in in a local meeting and realize it's affecting our family, we all of a sudden get a real strong interest in things, don't we? I mean, for many years I've seen people who weren't really doing that much kind of on the sidelines, but when their kids got into teens, all of a sudden they got very involved and interested in teen work or kids work or whatever it might be because it involves their house. It affects their household. And that's what you see right here. And so that's a, that's a good thing to keep in mind that uh, some of the things that uh, we are involved with, when we see it uh, personally affect us, that makes it even more important. And so we see that here in verse 10. Malchijah, it says in verse 11, the son of Haram and the Heshab, the son of uh, Pehath Moab, repaired another section as well as the tower of the ovens. Who is this Malchijah? Well, that's a good uh, lesson in itself. In Ezra chapter 10, 
Malkijah is identified as someone who was disqualified from ministry because of his walk with the Lord. But he was restored back to his walk with the Lord. And he's involved in building the gate. So no matter what you have done or where you've come from or whatever it is, you can count on the fact that uh, if you are, get back and track with the Lord, God can use you in a powerful way. I know somebody, a personal friend, who got off track, got into jail. I noticed that you had that on the listing right here. He's today serving as an elder in a New Testament assembly. Wonderfully restored. Powerfully restored. Great testimony of God's mercy and grace. Just like Malkijah right here. So all sorts of lessons emerge from this uh, chapter right here that remind us of uh, the blessings that God has for those who are fervent about serving the Lord. Speaking of which, in verse 20, notice, just skip ahead of verse 20. It says, After him, Baruch, the son of Zabbai, carefully or earnestly or diligently repaired the other section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. That phrase right there, carefully repaired, is the word burning hot. Now, you usually see that verse, that word in the Hebrew when somebody's very angry. But here it's when somebody has a burning passion to do something. I think you know people like that who have a real desire to see something accomplished for the Lord in a positive sense. Passionate, burning, fervent, it says. Let us do everything, not slothful, but fervent in spirit, it says in Romans chapter 12. So we need to be fervent in our work for the Lord, not half-hearted, not when we want to get around to it, but when God calls us to do something, to throw everything into it and do things not half-heartedly, but fervently. And this guy was certainly fervent. Uh, just quickly, in verse 13, Hanan and the inhabitants of Zenoa repaired the valley gate. That's another gate, the valley gate. This is the gate that led out to the valley. And, of course, that would mean go out to the low place. And uh, you can just see the application very clearly here. The best place to be in the walk with the Lord is taking the humble place. Uh, Psalm 25 reminds us in that verse that the meek will he guide in his way. Uh, the Lord Jesus says, take my yoke upon me, upon you and learn of me, for I'm meek and lowly in heart. The wonderful example of the Lord Jesus uh, given by the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2 to those believers. There was some sort of strife going on in that local assembly. And he was dealing with it and he was ramping up to it. And in Philippians chapter 2 he says, don't let anything be done through strife or vainglory, but loneliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than himself. And then he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robber to be equal with God, made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of a servant, being found in fashion as man, he humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. That's the best place to be. Follow in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus. And when we follow in his footsteps, then the Lord works through us because he knows we're not in it for glory or any other thing. We're in it for his glory. And so uh, that's the best place to be. And that's a reminder to us in the valley gate for that to be fixed up or repaired in our lives, not for self-aggrandizement, not for self-glory, not for gain, not for anything like that, but for the Lord's glory. Then the blessing of the Lord falls upon you. That great verse found in uh, 1 Chronicles 16.9. It says, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth in order to show himself strong on the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. That's where I think all of us would like to be. In order for us to be there, we have to have the heart that is in line with that. That requires that low walk. 
that trusting in the Lord and uh, really leaning on him. And that's what we see here in the valley gate. I think that's the lesson that comes to us from that. In verse 15, there's the fountain gate. The fountain gate was the place where water was dispensed. When we think of the Christian life and uh, how water is dispensed, we are to be conduits of God's blessings, channels only, blessed master. Uh, We sing that song over and over again. What's that mean? That means to be a blessing to other people. Bring that refreshment through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the word of God, to be a a source of refreshment to other people. Uh, John 7 says it really well. Uh, When you believe in the Lord Jesus, out of your uh, inner being is what the verse means, will flow rivers of living water. You become a source of blessing to other. To the unsaved, it leads to their salvation. You bring them the water of life. To the believer, that water, just like it came out of the rock in the wilderness, becomes a source of refreshment for the Lord's people. We can be that way and uh, be the means for refreshment to other people. As it says in Philemon, the hearts of the saints are refreshed by thee. And so that's what we want to do is be a source of blessing others. And that's a reminder to the fountain gate. When we are doing that, we're blessed. The other people are blessed. It's a win-win situation, isn't it? And so that's what we need to keep in mind when we are looking at these things from a personal revival standpoint. There's another gate found in verse 26. Look with me at verse 26 briefly. It says, Moreover, the Nethanim who dwelt in Ophel made repairs as far as the place in front of the water gate. Some of you who are in this room here this evening, who are alive in 1974 and aware of things, you heard that water gate, right? So you know that phrase. Water gate here, though, was a gate that was repaired, and it was the means by which water was brought in. And uh, the fountain gate, perhaps where the water went out, but here the water went in. And when we think of water in the scriptures, we think of the word of God. The washing of the water of the word, it says in Ephesians chapter 5. Water is a key thing. As a matter of fact, it's so key that in uh, Nehemiah chapter 8, a couple of chapters over, when the revival breaks out, where is the place that the revival takes place? It takes place at the water gate. All the people gathered together and they were there at the water gate. And so it wasn't the sheep gate, it wasn't anything else, it was the water gate. And we think of the Word of God. What's going to be a source of revival for God's people? It's going to be a theme you're going to hear, I know, throughout this year. You're going to hear it in October in the Workers and Elders Conference. The centerpiece of any revival is when the Word of God is preeminent and it goes out. And so uh, that's why I think the Watergate was a place that God chose for that revival to take place in Nehemiah chapter 8. There's two more gates, or three more gates I want to look at briefly. In verse 28, the horse gate. It says in verse 28, beyond the horse gate, the priest made repairs, each in front of his own house. There it is again, a personal application, this horse gate. This apparently was the gate where the horses would go out to battle with soldiers on them, of course. And they would go out to battle, the horse gate. And uh, the Christian life is a battle, isn't it? There's warfare that's involved. Each one of us is called to do battle. We are to... There were th- well, we are to do battle. There, are th- there were three uh, types of people in the nation of Israel. There was a prophet, priest, and a warrior, a soldier. Those three different classifications in the nation of Israel. All three of those have their counterparts in the Christian life. We are all to speak the word of God, and that way we're a prophet. We all are to offer up spiritual sacrifices by, 
according to Christ Jesus, as it says in 1 Peter 2. That's another thing. Third thing is we all earnestly contend for the faith. So we are to be soldiers. And so all three of those classifications in the Old Testament are balled together in one in the New Testament for every single believer. And the horse gate reminds us that we're all involved in a battle. The east gate in verse 29 is a reminder to us that uh, this east gate, which is called today the golden gate, you can go to Israel and see it's the golden gate. It's walled up. The Muslims centuries ago walled it up so that they were thinking, we know that the prophecy for Messiah is going to be that he is going to go through the eastern gate. And so they put a wall up there and then they put uh, cemetery gravestones, graves in front of it, knowing that the priest would not go through a graveside because it would be an unclean thing. So these prophecies are real in the minds of Allah, you know, even the Muslims. And so they know that the Lord is going to come through the eastern gate. They know that prophecy. The east gate right here is a reminder to us to keep that in mind about the Lord's return. That helps with the revival. He that has his hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. And so the reminder there also of the Lord's return and keeping that in our foremost in our minds. Second Timothy chapter four tells us that uh, God has given a crown. will give a crown to all those that love his appearing. The final gate here in this chapter, again, these are 10 gates. There's 12 altogether. But the final one here is the Mifkad gate in verse 31. After him, Malchijah, once again, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs as far as the house of Nethanim and of the merchants in front of the Mifkad gate. Kind of a different type of name. But it means the gate of review. So when those horses and soldiers went out of that certain gate and they would come back after battle, they would come through this gate to be reviewed and rewarded for deeds done in the battlefield. Do I have to make the application? I mean, it's pretty simple to see, right? That when it's all said and done, when you were the Lord in glory, there will be a time of review in which the Lord will review the work that's done for His name. And based on the quality, what sort it is in First Corinthians chapter 3, whether it's gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and stubble, which could be burned up, uh, we'll get a reward. We'll be saved yet as by fire, it says. We don't lose our salvation for anything, but uh, the quality of our lives and quality of our work and what was done to honor the Lord Jesus and lead others to Christ and build up the saints. And when we have that prominent in our mind, that's going to uh, encourage us to be living a godly life and a life that's well-pleasing to him. It's part of the ministry of their great high priest, the Lord Jesus, who is our chief shepherd. And he is our good shepherd. And he is our great shepherd. Hebrews 13 does all these things that we might do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Notice here at the very end, at the very last verse here, Verse 32, it says, And between the upper room at the corner, as far as the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and merchants made repairs. It all comes around full circle, doesn't it? Started with a sheep gate, went counterclockwise, came right around to the sheep gate around. It was full circle right there. And uh, just to wrap up, turn in your Bibles, please, to Colossians chapter 1. We'll conclude with this. Colossians chapter 1. It's interesting. It starts with the sheep gate. The sheep gate was located on the north side of the city. That was what was vulnerable to attack by the enemies of Israel. And the sheep gate is what's concluded here in this chapter. But uh, if you notice, 
Let's see. Uh, what chapter did I tell you to go to? <laughs> Colossians chapter 1. Thank you. Colossians chapter 1. I forgot there for a second. Just look with me at one of Paul's prayer. The very opening prayer of the Apostle Paul. Um, it says here in verse uh, 9. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and ask that you be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. He's praying for these believers that they be filled with the knowledge of his will. And so that was the initial prayer request. But then notice what it says after that. Verse 10. That you might walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Well, it starts off, be filled with the knowledge of God. And then as you go through that discipline, you then get filled with the knowledge of God. See the interesting thing? So you first have to take the step in the right direction to be filled with the knowledge of God. And as you do that, God gives further light and he fills you with more of his knowledge. Perhaps a, a, a deeper knowledge, more experiential uh, uh, knowledge that you'll get. So the first step is taking that step and moving and committing in that right direction. And then the Lord gives you further knowledge and further desire and passion to serve the Lord. And that's how it works with the Lord in God's economy, God's school of faith. Well, we just uh, took a brief run through in chapter three and looked at these gates. The whole overarching theme is this, that God wants you to serve him and serve him with full desire. You know, in the Old Testament, they had these things in the uh, sacrifices called flesh hooks. And this is when the the meat was on the, the offering, was on the fire. Some of that was allowed to be taken by the priest. But also, that sacrifice had to stay on that, centered on that sacrifice. That offering had to stay on that sacrifice. And sometimes those meat hooks or those flesh hooks and the tabernacle instruments, utensils, were used to keep that on track. Keep that on that sacrifice. On Romans chapter 12, we're told that we should... Uh, be willing to do what God would want us to do to be that have that acceptable sacrifice, which is our reasonable service. That we should, you know, be that way, committed fully to the Lord. And that's what I'd like to challenge everyone here uh, tonight with. The idea is: Are you allowing the Lord to challenge you, and are you open to the Lord and yielding to the Lord? Have you done the self inventory, your own walk with Him, to make sure? that uh, some of these things that might have been there in the past function fine in the past, maybe it's fallen into disrepair. And maybe you need to do some repairs on that. And the Spirit of God will make that clear and known to you. What, what is it? Is it worship? Is it evangelism? Is it uh, putting off some of the old past, thinking the new trends are where it is and forgetting the old past? Uh, some of these important parts of the Christian life are identified, I think, in picture in these gates and the Lord will make it known to you what that particular thing is that you need to have repaired in your life let's close in a word of prayer Father in heaven we pray that you would indeed speak to each person's heart here this evening Lord we've uh, gone through a portion rather quickly but we know Lord that uh, the Holy Spirit can identify whatever that might be in our own personal walk whether it's personal or corporate whatever it might be that needs to be shored up, that needs to be bolstered and fixed. Lord, we pray that you give us the desire to assess, acknowledge it, then assess it, and then take the action to fix it. 
We ask, Father, for your help in these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.